if indeed the driver is to identify new products, it's all about time to market. And if it's all about time to market, how can we deploy these hybrid modeling approaches or even metabolic models or any type of modeling to accelerate that process development? Hey, smart biotech scientists, welcome to this episode on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Have you ever wondered how you could use models to optimize, to describe your processes and to control them? Well, if this is the case, you are at the right place because today I'm having a conversation with Yoskani Jimenez Denval. He's an assistant professor at the School of Chemical and Bioprocess Engineering at the University College in Dublin. And he leads the Animal Cell Technology Group and works on integrating computational modeling with advanced experimentation to optimize the production of biopharmaceuticals. So stay tuned for an insightful and thought-provoking discussion. Are you juggling the complexities of CMC development while trying to enjoy the beauty of biotech? Have you ever wondered if there's a way to simplify bioprocessing? Welcome to the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast, where we're diving headfirst into the very challenges you face. We're breaking it down, demystifying the jargon, and giving you the keys to unlock your full potential. I'm your host, David Brohlman, and I get it. With 15 plus years in the biotech industry, I face the same challenges you do. There's a way to simplify and streamline so you can remove complexity, you can skip trials and errors, deliver without delay your groundbreaking therapy to clinics at market, and still enjoy every single step. Do you want to learn how industry experts and I did it? Grab a cup of coffee and your favorite notebook and pen. Now is the time to take your bioprocessing game to the next level. Let's smarten up biotech. Hey, Yoskani, it's so good to have you on the show today. Thanks, David. It's a fantastic opportunity to get a chance to speak with you and to nerd out about topics that we're both quite passionate about. So thanks very much for the invitation. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Yoskani, share something that you believe about bioprocess development that most people disagree with. I hope it's not too unpopular, but I think that the business model of biopharma or pharmaceuticals in general incentivizes the development of new products to treat medical needs, which I think makes a lot of sense because it's where most of the value is generated. The knock-on impact of that on process development and optimization is I believe it disincentivizes, alongside regulatory constraints, optimization of existing processes. That's my unpopular opinion. Excellent. Yaskadi, give us the two-minute version of how you got started in biotech and you ended up where you are today. I am from Mexico, and when I was doing uh, my undergrad, the program was a bit dated, and they didn't have any biotech, and I was very, very passionate about biology ever since high school. So during my undergrad in Mexico, I did my best to access study abroad. So I studied in the University of California, Santa Barbara, and that's when I really fell in love with biotech because I had fantastic lectures in a couple of uh, core biotech modules in the realm of chemical engineering. After California, I returned to Mexico. I started looking for graduate opportunities and did the master's in chemical engineering with biotech at Imperial, then PhD in biosystems engineering at Imperial. And then just, I guess it was a downward slope from there. 
PhD, postdoc in the same area, I was given the opportunity to start up my own group on the University of College Dublin and, you know, just pursuing the same kind of general area of integrating computational models with advanced experimentation to optimize pharmaceutical bioprocess in particular, with a distinct focus on quality, especially glycopulation. So let's jump into your research because, Scott, you're doing exciting stuff and I've been following you for a while now. Especially you mentioned the magic word glycosylation and you're using computational methods to describe and to control and optimize bioprocesses. So how do you do that exactly? The loop starts with creating a computational model and then all computational models have inherent assumptions. If they're dynamic models, they have a set of unknown number values that we're uncertain of. So the overall idea is to generate experimental data so that we can obtain more certain numerical values for those unknown, say, kinetic parameters and so on and so forth. And once you do that, you basically plug in those values back and then you can use the model to optimize, but that's not the end of the loop. The loop hasn't been closed. So the overall idea is to return and generate additional experimental information to enhance robustness of the model and the kinetic parameters even further. So you, you, know, you close the loop and you continue. Based on that general concept, it also is very contingent on the types of models that you use and that we've used in my group for these purposes. On one hand, I already kind of mentioned them, so kinetic models. So the overall idea is you want to describe potentially, say, in the bioreactor, how cells grow, how they consume nutrients, how they produce certain glycoforms for the recombinant protein and so on. So if they're dynamic models, you need experimental data to essentially calibrate but then you want to continue closing the loop. And then once you're sure that your model is sufficiently robust, you could deploy it for optimization. In this case, numerical optimization, which is, which is something that we commonly do. That's on one hand on the kinetic model side. Other stuff that we've been doing that we've been quite happy with is using, say, models of cellular metabolism to identify cell engineering targets and basically going into the lab overexpressing certain genetic engineering targets or downregulating them, depending on what the model, I guess, suggests. If the outcome, if it is qualitatively and quantitatively, what the model predicted should happen. So I guess that's the two broad flavors of stuff that we do in my group. What are these types of computational models we have at our disposal? There's a multitude. I already mentioned two. I already mentioned kind of the kinetic models. I also mentioned the metabolic models, flux balance or metabolic flux analysis. They're subtly different. And then another aspect that's gaining a lot, a lot of traction, I believe you spoke recently with Michael Sokolov from Data How. So I think we're from the same general school of thought in this sense, I'd say. But you have a third class, if you may, are data-driven approaches, where just purely based on the available or data that will be generated in one of these projects, you can derive essentially statistical expressions that relate inputs and outputs. Now, those can be applied to multiple objectives on one hand, and the most common way in which this is done is for chemometrics, right? So for example, for Raman signals, for continuous monitoring of bioprocesses, there's vast amounts of data that are generated, the full Raman spectrum. And the overall idea is you can perform data analysis and then generation of data-driven models that relate certain nutrients or metabolites or products or even glycosylation profiles to the Raman signal that's being observed. And to generate that calibration curve, you can use these data-driven approaches on their own. Then there's other people that have used machine learning approaches, right? Neural networks, Gaussian processes to 
describe inputs and outputs in terms of processing as well. I understand that you've already had a, a very fruitful conversation with Michael. One of the really cool things that they've demonstrated in DataHow has been hybrid approaches where you combine certain aspects of mechanistic models, so the material balances. We live in a real universe where the laws of conservation have to be obeyed. So those are going to be rules that can't be broken, but then you can supplement those material balance equations, for example. You can supplement those or cover gaps in knowledge through data-driven approaches such as neural networks or Gaussian processes. And what I mean by the filling the gaps is some of the rates with which house cells grow and the dependencies on several process inputs we're sort of uncertain, or they might be very, very specific to a given cell type or to a given process. So because of those uncertainties, these kind of more esoteric, if you may, modeling approaches are very, very useful to describe those less understood phenomena that are occurring. But the key idea is in hybrid models, you combine both and you get the best of both worlds, right? You're constraining an infinite solution space by the material balances, and then you're describing really difficult to describe phenomena with data-driven approaches. So again, I think that's a really, really exciting avenue. And again, I think data has doing fantastic work. And we're doing some of that work as well in my group, all with the aim of on the dynamic kinetic models side of thing to optimize processes, possibly help towards process development as well. And where do you see this going? Because there's a lot of things happening. A lot of people are working in that space. What are the trends and innovations? One of the key limitations that we have in pharmaceutical bioprocessing is the volume of data that we have. And again, this is more for the kinetic side of models, because I already mentioned that Raman spectroscopy is just vast amounts of data, but it's very, very separable. I think one of the key challenges is limited availability of data. I remember one of the best lectures I've ever had. I remember discussing with him about data availability in the pharma and biopharma sector. And he said, this is nowhere near the volumes of data that are referred to as big data. This process data can fit easily in a thumb drive. This was for him to contrast between big data that, say, the Googles or the Facebooks or et cetera, use to generate their models or even the large language models and so on and so forth. In the context of reduced data availability, I believe very strong innovations, more recent innovations, are, for example, the very nice use of Gaussian processes because they seem to require far less, a far smaller volume of data to perform well in terms of predictive capability. And then a lot more recently, I think there are people investigating the use of deeper neural nets, and they seem to perform very nicely with less data requirements. So shallower neural nets to describe, again, those uncertain phenomena within the mechanistic models. Shallow neural nets require quite a bit of data, which contrasts with data availability across the sector. So again, it seems that Gaussian processes may address part of the issue, but at the same time, deeper neural nets seem to perform quite well without having those excessive data requirements. That's on the side of deployment and then on the side of what the models are used for. This is a key question. One of my fantastic colleagues in UCD always pose the question, so what do we use these models for? How can we pitch them? As academics, how can we pitch their usefulness to companies? That question disappeared a while ago, but it's still very much the case in biopharma, I believe. 
based on my semi-unpopular opinion that I mentioned at the top of the chat, if indeed the driver is to identify new products, it's all about time to market. And if it's all about time to market, how can we deploy these hybrid modeling approaches or even metabolic models or any type of modeling to accelerate that process development? So I guess that's one of the key sales points that we might be able to have and how those things can be achieved. I'd say making information, core information transferable from one process to the next. Because if you're able to do that robustly across a multitude of product, products slash processes, then you have the possibility of really accelerating process development, which again ultimately translates into patients gaining access to life-saving medicines early. Uh, and of course, from the company's perspective, to keep exclusivity for longer and to enhance their bottom line which is, you know, everybody wins. So I think that's one of the great opportunities that are already being explored, but I think there's still work to be done in that space. Yeah, smart biotech scientists. This is an excellent question to ask. What are we using these models for? It's about having a goal in mind and knowing exactly what you're doing. And a question that comes into my mind related to that, Yoskani, is what are the strengths and weaknesses of these models? Because we need to be well aware of where it makes sense to use them and when it doesn't. In terms of non-hybrid, so purely, say, mechanistic or non-data-driven approaches, again, on the kinetic side, a key caveat is always what assumptions are there, what assumptions the modeler includes in the model, and whether they're realistic for the given process that they're trying to describe, and so on. So that's always going to be the case. Translating that slightly into the hybrid approaches, you could argue that the analogy would be how many hidden layers, so what the structure is of, say, a neural net and so on and so forth. The assumptions are always going to be key. And then here's where I'm going to quote, again, another of my favorite lectures from back in the day. It's also about the data. Because in either approach, you require high-quality data. So the better quality of the data, the more confidence you're going to have in model performance, ultimately, and its inherent or underlying kinetic parameters, if the data that's been used to, say, again, calibrate the model is poor, then the model's going to perform poorly. So I think access to data and quality of data, and also, this is one of the ones that we encounter often when we work alongside in collaboration, say, with pharma companies, is the data coverage. So how much of the design space do we have data points for? Because it's not uncommon to have companies provide process data, but process data is how much variation can you have in those process runs? Because of their nature, if they're already process manufacturing process data, they will have as little variability as possible. So it's akin to performing parameter estimation with a single point. So it's all about during development, what kind of coverage of the design space you have. And again, data robustness. I think those are the two caveats that I could think of. Blind confidence in going, okay, so the model seems to perform very, very well when calibrated with the number 250. So now let's optimize a 5,000 liter process with that data. Having confidence in the modeling work is an important aspect, but it shouldn't be blind. We should be critical, you know, constructively critical about the work that's there. And that's precisely the value of the question that you're posing. What are the limitations of our model? That's one of the key questions that should be asked once the first cycle of the model development has been completed. 
Let's ask this question a different way. Perhaps who you are listening to this show today, you're asking the question, okay, how can I extract the maximum amount of information out of my data set? Can you help us navigate data? When data is being analyzed, I have the impression that it's often treated as an input-output. So you just see a series of inputs, say, temperature or a feeding regime or a given nutrient concentration or something like that, and what impact that has on a specific KPI at the output. If you see them as two separate points, it's all about the trajectory of the line that links them, if that makes any sense. And that's not always a one-to-one, it's not always linear, it's not always monophasic, it's, it can also it's on. One of the things I'm particularly, I guess, passionate about is strategies to process data, kinetic data, right? Sorry, I didn't say this at the very, very top, but I deal mainly with upstream models that describe upstream processes, so cell culture and bioreactors and stuff like that. We're dealing with dynamic processes. You have, let's say, time profiles of cell densities and viabilities and nutrient concentrations and so on. One of the things I'm very, very passionate about is processing that data to extract dynamic information out of it, not just a one-to-one relationship, but also tease out what that trajectory is linking both of them. I think we discussed this in a fair degree of detail in a few publications from my group. One of the things that I think is crucial, especially for constructing hybrid models, is to have a good workflow to extract quantitative information on the specific rates, so the cell-specific rates, so QP, pig gram per cell per day, specific uptake rates of nutrients, uh, specific secretion rates of metabolites, that kind of thing. There are robust strategies to do so. And once you start relating those and using that process data to draw those input-output relationships, I think it really creates a far better understanding of the process. Smart biotech scientists, I hope you've gotten as much value out of this conversation with Yosgani Jimenez del Val as I have. Coming up in part two, we're going to look at how you can extract the maximum amount of information out of your data sets and how you can strike the optimal balance between modeling and experimentation. So stay tuned for part two of our conversation. All right, smart scientists. That's all for today on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Thank you for tuning in and joining us on your journey to bioprocess mastery. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, we can empower more scientists like you. For additional bioprocessing tips, visit us at smartbiotechscientist.com. Stay tuned for more inspiring biotech insights in our next episode. Until then, let's continue to smarten up biotech.